welcome to the Independence Can podcast. My name is Charlie Caruso and Oliver Yates and I are delighted to welcome former Green Senator Scott Ludlam, who since his retirement from federal politics has been very busy writing a book that's just come out called Full Circle, A Search for the World That Comes Next, surviving catastrophic fires that ravished the Australian country and amongst other things, getting arrested at the Extinction Rebellion protests. Now, I can include so much more in this introduction, as uh, Scott is such an impressive individual, but there is a lot to cover in an hour, so I'll make sure to include his full bio in the show notes and crack straight on. Uh, Scott Ludlam, thanks for joining Oliver and I uh, for the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's nice to see you all. I can ask you, you know, conventional questions like, you know, what made you decide to write a book or what was that process like? But there are going to be a million of those questions thrown at you in the next coming weeks. So I'm going to go, and I don't know if you remember this, but uh, you and I had a conversation many moons ago for another podcast I was doing. And, um, you know, your response to my rather naive question was one of those light bulb moments for me that, that really just sort of changed the way that I saw the world. And, I don't know if you remember, but I asked you whether Australians should form a rebellion and stop paying tax and bankrupt the government and take over that way. Um, and you replied very sensibly and, and for me profoundly and said, you know, something to the lines of, we don't need a revolution. There are roughly, you know, 220 odd seats in federal parliament. If you find 200 good people to replace those in power today, that you could uh, change the country for the better. Uh, so is that is that still your position? Is that still where your your thoughts are at? I feel like I might have oversimplified things a little bit. I remember the conversation. I don't remember being so utterly prescriptive. We're perilously short of time to find the 250-odd individuals. So, okay, let's get to it. Yeah, Scott, look, I've heard you explain. I mean, one of the, one of the things about this podcast is it's listened um, to by many people who are not really familiar with the political system. And the term political capture is is not well understood by people, but I heard you explaining it to others. And um, it is a really important concept that people understand. So I'm just wondering whether um, you could explain to our listeners when you talk about political capture in our system here in Australia, what, what do you mean? So it's a, it's a concept that I first came across in South Africa and it landed fair and square when I heard them talking about it there. They call it state capture. And they mean it to be something that is very distinct from corruption and very distinct from oligarchy. It's a place in the middle. And the reason it was resonant for me, and there's a body of scholarship around for it, the, the concept or the phenomenon has been picked up everywhere from post-Soviet states in Eastern Europe, post-colonial Africa, Latin America, where you're looking at something that's kind of midway along the slide between corruption, petty corruption, which is generally not very systematic, means laws are being broken uh, on the one hand, and oligarchy on the other, where the system is completely locked down, you begin to lose all of your freedoms to dissent, media freedoms are curtailed. And in Australia, we're clearly suffering from something much more systematic than ordinary corruption. It's there, we know that it's there. Um, and similarly, we're not, this isn't an oligarchy. There are constructs, there are democratic constructs that do have some integrity. There are anti-corruption bodies that exist. There is, with all its limitations, uh, a free press. The three of us are able to have this conversation in relative safety. So the concept of state capture is when the rulemaking apparatus is captured by 
a set of powerful families or a religious sect, or in our case, an industry, um, uh, an industry lobby, an industry, a set of particular investors in a particularly powerful industry. And what distinguishes it from corruption is that the rulemaking processes themselves are the subject of capture. So you and I know, we all know, and this is the reason I think that, that what you're doing um, and this process of marshalling independence together is interesting, uh, is that no matter who forms government, the next time there's a federal election, the next time there's a state or territory election, no matter who it is, we can be reasonably confident the oil and gas industry and the coal industry will have a working majority in whatever chambers of parliament exist. They will have a working majority. If independents or the Greens or other friendly crossbenchers put up a motion to say these industries need to be phased out immediately, uh, we will lose that motion. You won't, that legislation won't get up. These, this industry sector has a working majority. They have the backing of the media. They've swamped our political system with cash. The revolving door between the industry sector, the media and senior political officers is seamless. It's not one way, it is seamless and it moves between those three poles. Um, and I guess all three of us in different ways have seen that operating at very close range. Because it's not a full oligarchy or a dictatorship, this is not a call to abandon that system, but it's a call to be very realistic about it. State capture is different to corruption. There are ways of going after it, as they discovered in South Africa, and there are ways of going after it here. So, Scott, just going back into those ways of going going at it, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying, and I mean, you, and you've um, you've kind of uh, spoken really about capture, in essence, through through the fossil fuel scenario. But but uh, you know, and 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 again. I think that a lot of people feel disenfranchised by this capture in the sense that is capture really about making sure that, or is capture defined as as really a scenario where very small groups actually are able to have a disproportionate influence on policy decisions that affect the individuals? And I and I and I take take this through because obviously there's you know everyone can talk about fossil fuels and then we can talk about the Murdoch media. But it seems to be quite pervasive even in corporate Australia because, you know, all the CEOs seem to hang up together. They all go to the same, you know, Qantas club. They all go to the same conferences. They all chat nicely to their own ministers and they're all in, you know, no one really steps outside. Um, is that capture or is it just gutlessness? Is that what you mean by capture? And if, and if, and if you were trying to disrupt any of this capture, I mean, how do, how do you disrupt it? Because we don't have an, a, um, a, a federal ICAC. And as we've seen, it's, it's the revolving doors that, that seem to be allowed between a lot of industries and government that make it very hard for people to, to pin down and disrupt the capture. So what are your thoughts on, on the broader concept of capture and how you do disrupt it? See, I don't think it's so much gutlessness as that all the incentives are lined up in a particular way. To succeed in politics, it's just a lot easier to not cross these people. As Kevin Rudd, Julia Gillard, Malcolm Turnbull all found out in their own ways, uh, it's politically extremely risky to cross these industries. You can find yourself on the wrong side of them. And the next thing you know, the whole system swings against you to get rid of you. Even if, I would argue um, what, what Mr Turnbull was doing was vastly and thoroughly inadequate in terms of facing this, the steepness of the challenge we're up against. But even that was too much for these people. So I think it's not gutlessness. It's if you want to make a career and you're in a hurry in, in politics, 
the easiest downhill run for you is just to do what these investors say. They will pay for your election campaign. They'll give you a free ride in the media. They will staff your office. They will marshal volunteers for you. That's how it's structured. Well, what do we do about it? Um, I've been involved in a movement for nearly 20 years now that refuses to bank checks from these people. We don't take money from the gas industry or the coal industry uh, or any of these industries. We don't staff our offices with people who are fresh out of those industries. We don't go and work for them when we leave politics. And I suspect it's very much similar to the project that you're both engaged in, is we need to start, you know, these are legislatures. These industries don't own these places. They were established at enormous cost to the people who set them up. Um, it's about targeting who, who is in there for the public interest and who's not, and naming names, replacing them one after another. Absolutely. I mean, how much do you think is the challenge to do with the education piece? Like I, I often talk to people, let's just use WA as an example um, with the, the recent state election. I, I'd be confident to say before COVID, if I just randomly went up to people my age and asked them who was even the Premier, frankly, they, they would be struggled to, to answer. That's changed with COVID. But I, I do, I am fearful of how little information people have and how little people realise how their futures are being stolen from them. What are your views on that? Is, is, are we suffering a mass uh, miseducation and, and a lack of um, participation? I think it's, it's complicated and it is worth unpacking it. Um, we have a world-class public education system, so I don't think it's quite as simple as just pointing at that. Um, I think... Yes, there's a reasonable degree of political literacy. And if you take something like, like the Western Australian instance from the, from the election not that long ago, which turned into this extraordinary Queensland-style wipeout, yeah. I, do, I don't think it's easy. I, I, don't, I wouldn't just rest on, on a lack of education for that. I think people, we've seen this right around the country last, people swing behind incumbents in a public health emergency. You try to put politics aside, swing behind incumbents, and if as Mark McGowan did, it looks as though the response is being led by public health professionals and not politics, you'll get rewarded. Um, and I'm, you know, from Western Australia, they, they don't hate the idea of a closed border. They don't hate the idea of stopping people from Sydney coming in. Um, and, but I think mostly jokes aside, it was an adept public health response that was a pretty zero tolerance and it kept, uh, kept COVID out of the West while they were looking at people in, in pretty brutal lockdowns in other part of the country. But look at how oppositions have fared, oppositions and crossbench parties actually, have fared right around the country. Labor can't get traction federally. They're nowhere in New South Wales. They are a hopeless mess of a basket case in Victoria. Um, in that kind of emergency, as long as people are confident it's public health experts that are calling the shots, incumbents are doing very, very well. I'm interested in what happens when we map that onto climate, where uh, incumbents and opposition parties, the, the two main political formations in the country, crossbench and Greens to one side, are both owned and manipulated and operated by the interests that are causing the emergency. And for me, that means we're in a completely, we're in uncharted territory. Um, and what that looks like, I think, is in the aftermath of the um, Black Summer, just over 12 months ago, when the entire Eastern Seaboard was on fire, that was shaping up to be politically catastrophic for Morrison because he's culpable and incompetent at the same time. The only thing 
that saved his ass, in my view, is that the pandemic swept in and, and took, took those fires off the front page. Now, you're not going to get free passes uh, time after time after time as this thing deepens and as the fires continue, as the floods and the storms and the crop failures continue, they're not going to get those get-out-of-jail-free cards all that often. Yeah, I mean, Scott, if I could just kind of interject there, like I know we don't get the get-out-of-jail-free cards all the time, and yes, there may be some movement, um, but but I'm, you know, you've been in the Greens for a, a long period of time, and, and I certainly respect, respect their strong policies on you know transparency and donation reform. Um, but how do we how, how do we we're not kind of winning? Um, how how do we move this up the agenda? Because you know, Liberal will you know spin it to say, oh, look, you know, we are green, we're doing everything that we're doing now. And, and, and you know, Labor will do the same and the voters um, just get wool pulled over their eyes. And that's not to be mean to voters, but they, they seem to. Um, you know, they, they think the Greens is, is, is more about carbon, renewable energy and environment than it is about transparency, I think, and integrity, which I think is something that we, you know, I'd be encouraging a lot more, more effort on. But, but uh, you've been at it for a long period of time. I mean, I've been at it for a long period of time, and I think many of our listeners have been seeking change for a long period of time. There's a degree of frustration that we're not, we're not winning. What do we do? It's a hard thing to hear, but it's true. Uh, if we were winning, we wouldn't have our backs up against it the way we do. We wouldn't be having this conversation in tones of emergency. So as much as it's hard to hear and possibly a bit harder to say, we're not winning. Um, so I reckon, yes, let's leave that on the table. Um, where I've got to and where the book has kind of taken me is that if we imagine that this is going to be solved legislatively by policymakers and rational decision-making, um, we're cooked. We have, to, we have to break some rules, but we also have to widen what we would consider to be effective political action. So one quick example um, from which I draw a lot of heart. The Adani Corporation wanted that coal mine in the Galilee open in 2014. You look at their old, their old reports to the market, first shipments 2014. Now they've had a very easy run legislatively. They've had roadblocks and they've had legal challenges. They've, they've overcome most of those. They've had all their paperwork in hand for years. How come that mine's not running yet? And it's because campaigners very adeptly have taken up corporate campaigning and they've been speaking to investors, to banks, to insurance companies, to entities all the way back through the supply chain in language that they understand. They've driven them away from a toxic project. Uh, in a political context where both major parties are uh, very supportive of that project getting up. So I know this is a bit of a niche example but there are other forms of political action and political participation and collective action that don't involve waiting for an election every three years and trying, to, and trying to flip a couple of key seats. We should still do that every three years. But if we wait for those opportunities and if our whole movement is structured in terms of waiting for those opportunities and having a shot every three years and oh, not this time, maybe next time, maybe in 2025, we are out of time. Some of it is about widening what we consider our scope of political action. So, uh, so, so you kind of, I mean, I'm just going to jump in, but you, you kind of imagining, I mean, I don't know why we don't do this, but, you know, we do as political parties, and I see it in this seat and a few others, is that everybody kind of stands around and waits for the election to be called. But in essence, shouldn't we be running the election in the streets of suburbs? 
every year, you know, every November, we pretend there's an election and get out on the streets and campaign. Um, we seem we seem to just let let these guys set the um, set their time. I mean, so what what, what do you what, is that what you mean? Is that what you mean by in terms of changing changing things or or what? It's both, right? Like I I agree, we can't afford to wait around every three years. So what do we do? Do we sharpen people's awareness of what policymakers are doing between elections? That's good. But I also think it sells short the power of political action when you're in a captive state. If we agree with that premise, that automatically by definition says uh, this isn't actually going to be resolved entirely at the ballot box. You know, my theory of change was this. We will win a substantial number of seats in parliament. We will regulate this problem away with kind of stuff that you were doing when you were at the CEFC. We'll use investment tools, we'll use regulatory tools, mm -hmm. and we'll make this problem go away. Campaigners then um, don't really need to campaign between elections. They will get a desired electoral outcome, and then regulators and policymakers will finish the job. So that's one theory of change. Another theory of change says actually, we're out of time. We tried that in good faith in a system that the investors have more or less perfectly captured, we are instead gonna go out and start bankrupting these things one by one. Perhaps they'll listen to us then. That's a completely alternate theory of change. I think we need both running in concert and we need a certain amount of trust operating between those two limbs. Yeah, I 100% agree. I mean, I think there is also a lot to be said for um, people to stop complaining at the pub or at the TV or on the keyboard uh, in, in relative safety and actually, you know, come together and, and organise and, and think about instead of just sort of giving up this ability to have any sort of self-determination or giving up in, in desperation. It's like, well, what can we do on the little area? What can we do to, you know, to make a little stance here and then grow and, and have these communities that are far more engaged. And it doesn't have to be always under banners. It doesn't always have to be under brands per se. It's that human connection. It's that action of actually doing something to standing up. And, and, and I think they, that's scary for a lot of these politicians, right? Because, you know, they, the idea that we're organized and we're organized in, in really, you know, considered measure against their policies is, is still a threat. I, I believe it. I, I still think that's a force to be reckoned with. I think you can see that with how hard they went to take um, Kathy McGowan's seat back, how much resources were thrown at winning Denison back off Andrew Wilkie, because once people get entrenched, they get reputations, they, uh, they show that they can do the job. Adam Bant in Melbourne, very squarely in that, like he's increased his margin every time he's gone back to the polls. Um, you know, an incumbent, if they're not tied to fossil donations and they know that they owe their seat to the community that worked so hard to put them there, um, they're very popular. And then the majors don't get those seats back for, for, in some instances, a long period of time. So I don't want people to take away from this that politics is broken and we shouldn't bother. Uh, I think in 2010, we had this beautiful lesson. Disaffection in the major parties, you saw an unprecedented number of crossbenchers elected to the House and to the Senate. Adam took Melbourne for the first time. You had country, rural independence um, in, in uh, northern New South Wales. Uh, and that delivered through very adept negotiation uh, and the fact that Prime Minister Gillard was a good negotiator. Uh, that delivered the Clean Energy Act, that entire package. We can achieve stuff using these, these tools, as brittle as these tools are. 
they can be used when you get a kind of a surge. But it's just that they're so heavily contested. Uh, and I, I suspect that within Labor, at least, that experiment was considered a failure because it ended with Abbott getting elected with the wind at his back and rolling two thirds of that package back. So I don't, I don't want to, I'm not sitting here saying, um, you know, politics is a failure and we're all wasting our time because I deeply don't believe that. It's just that we need to be able to hold a couple of different uh, theories to change alive at the same time and also be aware that we just can't afford to sit around hoping that the next election goes better for us because of what it's likely to do uh, is, uh, best case, is to deliver a Labour Party that is taking just as much, it actually takes more money from the gas industry than the Tories do. Yeah. If, if that's our theory of change, we're, we're screwed. We just have to widen um, our, our perceptions, I guess, and, and the ways in which we organise. But a point on the, the crossbench, because, you know, um, it's a fair criticism to say not all independents are the kind of people that you want representing Australians. And, and I think that's a really important one because it can be running independence in, in a cloak veiled, poorly veiled often uh, attempt to just get uh, liberals um, elected uh, is a problem. But I mean, I was just watching a video of you um, arguing with Pauline Hanson in the Senate. I mean, you had to actually work with this woman. You, we Would you argue that it is important and largely the responsibility of voters to pay attention to how they sit in donation reform or how, you know, who's donating to them, how open and transparent are they? Because we don't need more Clive Palmers. We certainly don't need more um, Pauline Hansons or Fraser Rannings or all of those individuals. What would you, knowing the Greens and knowing the policy that the Greens have in this capacity, what would you sort of say to listeners to look out for to try to determine whether that person's a genuine um, representative or whether they're another puppet? Oh, goodness. I'm, so it called me a bit old-fashioned because I probably am. I, I generally feel like it's almost never worthwhile blaming the voters, which may seem a little bit counterintuitive because we're all grown-ups. We have agency as soon as we're of the age where we can legally vote. But I do think it's worth paying attention to the power structures and the kind of commercial messaging in particular that we're all saturated in. So that's one part of it, like um, not, not blaming voters for me feels like a reasonably reliable touchstone. Um, but if you're, if, you're, if you're somewhere where you think it might be possible that uh, a, um, you know, a well-organized and charismatic independent or green candidate could knock off an incumbent, the first thing I will say is follow the money. First of all, who's, who's paying for this person's campaign? Are they taking 10,000 small donations? Or one big one? Where's the big one coming from? Because there's no way that that doesn't shape the priorities that they're going to set when they're in there. There's how a candidate behaves when they're a candidate is one thing. Sometimes it's very different to how they behave when they're in there. I think there is enough practice in Australian political culture or, or you know, enough experience going back years to say that, that independence, uh, it is a viable model. There are people who've made it work. There are people who've repaid that trust that get put in them who clearly aren't owned by any particular interest group. Um, the problem that you have, and then this is the tension that somebody like me who's a former Green who's worked within a, a, um, a minor party or an emerging party around independence is that you can see that it's much easier for the government of the day to peel the independence off one by one, offer them a swimming pool or a new railway station, and then they come back and 
and somebody's broken cover and the bill gets through. There is some benefit in solidarity. I think party discipline is a curse on democracy, but there is some benefit in solidarity where it's like, no, no, you can negotiate with all of us mm. uh, for a public interest outcome, not for some little sweetener uh, which gets your awful bill up. So it's complex. I just think how, how we campaign for independence or cross party or, or, or cross benches or minor parties is different to the challenges that they'll face once they're actually in there. It's really important. So, um, a, very, a very interesting take on it because we often get challenged by people about, um, you know, <laughs> independence as to whether they should be a party or whether they shouldn't be a party and, and how they work together. And I think our, you know, our position uh, is that, um, to be honest, you know, we've set up a political party for the purposes of getting people to parliament. When they're in parliament, they're responsible to their electors and it doesn't really have a role. I mean, I'm sure independents should get together and form their own committee once in parliament. But, um, but it is a, an interesting question because some people do say, you know, what is one independent going to be able to do? And uh, what amazes me is how, how few people know that one independent actually, if they had the balance of power, can do an enormous amount. Um, but, but, you know, other people will say, well, then you'll just have a crazy who's calling the policies. But, um, Scott, if I go back just to, to one um, question, this issue of, again, level playing field, I mean... This, this activist approach or the other approach that you're talking about, right, we can go down the political approach or maybe we, you know, we have to be a little bit more uh, more active. The, the In terms of capture, it, it seems as if legislation is being put through to almost criminalise um, uh, activist activities. Not uh, almost, not almost, but to do that in Queensland, they banned lock-on devices based on a confected moral panic that it was putting police at risk. It's just completely made up. And that's a Labor state government. Um, that's, that's Premier Palaszczuk banning a particular tactic that Extinction Rebellion were using to draw attention to this horrific crisis that we're plowing into at full speed. So yes, that's what happens. That's one of the signatures of state capture is repurposing of public institutions. So you would take something like the police that's, or the courts, things that are notionally there to serve a public interest, and you will legislate to point them at a particular enemy. And that is exactly the gas industry, the Queensland Resources Council, I should say, right after those Dexar actions were unfolding across central Brisbane a year or two ago, uh, demanding that Labor legislate these tactics out of existence. 48 hours later, the Premier is calling a press conference. That is state capture. I don't know, but it's, um, it's not, um, how far is that away from state, I mean, I know state capture, but, but that, that actually obviously denies the ability of people to, to, to protest, which is what you're saying is one of the strategies. Um, you know, we, we've seen this numerous times, you know, if you sit in the middle of a road now, they're locking you up in Victoria and, and they fine you to death, you know, for, for, for a whole variety of different things. Yeah. Again, this re repurposing so that for some reason, what, what I don't get is how, um, Corporates seem to have better rights than citizens do. And, and you know, corporates are a creation of citizens. We created them into being, but, but their rights seem to be now um, higher than, than that of individual citizens. So in, in, your, in your book, do you cover this issue of, of, you know, we've got one hand, the government who is basically um, hell bent on using every form of legislation around to stop people from doing, you know, taking any action other than peaceful, perfect protest or going through the political process, because as we know, as you're saying, it's actually quite hard to be effective. You may need to go two stars here, two, two, two paths here. What, 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 do you, what, what do you say in the face of this type of, um, uh, of action from, from both state and federal governments now? 
just be really clear in the diagnosis of it. Uh, I ran across this body of research work in the US by this little team. Um, it's called the Investment Theory of Party Competition. And it was one of those things where I felt like this shouldn't have been a light bulb moment. I should have figured this out for myself. I should have known it already. But here it is. The Investment Theory of Party Competition just says based on uh, 50 years, no, 40 years of uh, of data from the United States. Every time they hold a House of Reps election in all of the seats across the United States, they count up who spends the most money, they correlate it with who wins the most vote. It's a straight line, direct correlation. Yeah. Almost exclusively, if you know in advance who spent the most money in a two horse House of Reps race in the US, you don't need people to vote. You'd be able to predict with almost perfect clarity who's gonna win. Uh, this is the opposite to how we are taught in primary school, that democracies are meant to work. And so who are the people making these donations? They are, yes, they're high profile, high net worth individuals, but mostly they're investor blocks who are writing checks to both candidates, which is what the fossil sector does here, uh, and, and weeding out anybody who looks like they might be a dissident at the pre-selection process through character assassination in the Murdoch press, uh, or just starving them of funding and oxygen. They can't get their message out. Now, I know this all sounds terribly bleak, but that's the playing field that we're on. If you're proposing to run as an independent, that is how steeply the playing field's pitched against you. So how do we do that as Greens? And how have we noticed people like Andrew or Kathy doing it in the real world as independents? Is instead of money, you substitute love. You substitute very large scale mass mobilizations of people donating their time. Maybe it adds up to a million bucks if they were charging, but they're not. They're just people doing the work in, in you know, large scale. And also you shake the tin. You don't get a small number of large donations, you get a large number of small donations. So we know how to do this. And none of this is to say we shouldn't bother. It's to say, be aware how steeply this playing field is tilted against us. And then let's do the work. Yeah, I love that. I like that. Uh, I really, really like that. I mean, it, it is a matter of, um, uh, of using uh, love, for want of a better word. I mean, you know, uh, when you're running a campaign where uh, it is really a volunteer grassroots uh, effort that a lot of people don't have a lot of money who are involved in these campaigns, but um, but their time, because they front face-to-face -face other people, yeah. is actually worth more um, if they can carry a message and they actually believe the message is worth more than another... Uh, you know, a sign on on, on a on a phone box, which uh, which yes. you know litter, littered around here, um, and it is it is skewed against you because, as you know, as a member of parliament, you can use um, your whole electoral allowance now to actually go and campaign and all of your yes. stuff. So you start off, I don't know, maybe six hundred thousand bucks behind before you even start. Um, so you need a lot of love, uh, and I think that's a very important part. Is that if uh, and that's and that's where I think the Cathy's campaign and some of these. Voices campaigns, and I also think the grassroots nature of the Greens has been uh, fantastic in the way that they have been able to, um, uh, in essence, enhance and and hold the community together and engage the community to deliver more value than just cash. There is something to that um, that sense of belief that it's not a waste of time that you could actually get somebody elected. I don't think there's any possibility the Greens. So we we elected our first MP in 1984. Um, that's Joe Valentine. It wasn't called the Greens back then, but that's she ended up as a Greens rep. That's what that's where the party evolved from. Uh, without banking a single check from Santos in that entire time. So I don't have any experience running campaigns as an independent, but as a Green, they are very large scale volunteer mobilizations. 
otherwise they otherwise we would have ceased to exist a long time ago and the only the only reason you can persuade people to do that the only reason i was persuaded to go out and door knock for other candidates is because i i strongly believe in the purpose i don't want to go and get someone elected who's just going to be there as a mouthpiece for bhp um, i think it's a really important point i mean Charlie, i don't know whether you see but i certainly saw it a bit in my campaign is that to be honest People always thought that, you know, if, if you were chatting to them, you were going to be asking them for money. But actually, when you're asking them for their time and their commitment and their support and their skills, um, the breath of fresh air and the willingness of people to provide that uh, is, is incredible. And I think that's what we need to do more is we need to actually be, be clearly we're going to have a donation business and our donation business is actually donating time, effort um, and meaningful uh, activity. Yeah. Um, should, maybe we should value that. Maybe that would give people a sense of a competitive playing field. You know, when Josh spends $2.2 million in Kuyong, maybe we should have added up the time of our uh, our um, our supporters versus him flying them down from Sydney because the Liberal Party had to fly them down so they could manage yeah. polling booths and say, well, actually, guys, uh, they did spend $2.2 million, but actually when we valued the time of the local community, we actually donated X dollars to this campaign through their time because people do want to feel that they're, that they're not they're not behind the pack. They want to feel right. that they're level. And um, maybe something we should be thinking about more is to value people's time more to try and level the playing field. I think whether you put a number on it or not, the number is interesting because although we, the data is not as solid at all for the Australian context as the stuff that I discovered in the US, the party that spent the most money won the most seats in five out of five of the last federal elections. So there's some kind of correlation. It's not perfect. Otherwise, Palmer would be prime minister. Yeah. So you've got, to, you've got to kind of look at the at the overall averages and the overall picture. But I, but you know, my intuition... It's depressing would, when you say that, though, Scott, because it's kind of like, oh, well, if you don't have cash, then you don't win, you know. And that's no, crazy. and we don't have cash, and yet we can win. Yeah, I, I agree. That's... that's uh, I think that's um, I think that's that's it. We need to convince people that cash actually it does nothing more than provide you a way to fill in what the community could have provided in the first place. You're just Spot buying on. the community services that the community could have yeah. provided. Spot on. In, in parts of the world where I visited um, in the course of researching the book, it was spoken of in Mongolia, in Nairobi, and in India. Um, candidates work shanty towns, buying votes. They will spend money in exchange for a certain number of votes. All right, so that's, we are not so far from that. And I think it is right to point out to people that that money is a substitute for political commitment, but that's something that we can at least provide uh, without the intermediary of cash. But I think it's also important to note that we're getting to a point now where um, political representation from the two majors is just so uninspired is so uninspired, is so um, mundane and, and is frustrating and the outcomes are so far away from where I think most Australians would wish it to be, um, that, that there is this opportunity, I think, if, if Australians are willing to embrace it, that to vote differently, to take a chance, because we're getting to the point where we have to do something differently. We cannot continue to bounce between these two major parties, which, as you said, it makes no difference because the, those that are buying them out and buying those policies, in effect, uh, you know, buy them both. Um, you know, I think that there is a time, it is now, we have to start to encourage people to do things differently and especially use the power of their vote because, you know, women not that long ago 
threw themselves in front of horses for the right to vote. And I, and I wonder, um, you know, whether we can try to instill a level of, of urgency, but that goes to the point that I wanted to raise is, is there a problem or is it problematic that the, that the challenges that we face just seems too much for people to be able to break out of normal behavioral patterns? Is it, how do we construct the narrative in a way that's inspiring and engaging and uplifting and not teeter into overwhelming people so that they disengage. Cause I feel like that's, that's this tightrope that we're, we're sort of on at the moment. I, I think you're right. And I feel like it's constructed that way deliberately. So one of the, this is some stuff I sketch in the book and I don't feel like this is evidence-based, right? This is purely an opinion, but it's, it's pretty obvious that one of the main traits of neoliberalism which is kind of the process of parasitizing the public dimensions of our society for private benefit. One of the things that it does is it assumes ideological control of public institutions like public transport, public health, public schools, uh, public broadcast, any housing, anything with the word public in front of it. Uh, it rips the funding out, it trash talks it, it runs it into the ground, and then ah, oh, it's not working. The private sector, on the other hand, could run this much more efficiently and so why don't we sell it for parts? And investors will swoop in, they'll grab the profitable bits, they will auction off whatever's left. And that's the basic business model. I'm of the view that it's not just public housing that they're doing that to, they're doing that to democracy itself. Yeah. The, the disengagement, the apathy is part of the model. People not voting is a feature, not a bug. And so like the ANU, they do this, this um, quite detailed survey after every federal election. Um, year after year, or election cycle after election, they, they ask people, uh, do you think politician is just for big business? Uh, do you think politics is just for, for, um, for big business? And it's in the 50 to 60 to 70% range of people say politics is just for where people look after themselves. It's where the big end of town looks after its own interests. People get it. You know, we're, we're not having to make that case. Everybody gets it. The, the trick for us, whether you're an independent, whether you're a green, whether you're trying to crack this system from outside the establishment, is how do we turn that understanding from apathy into rage, into urgency? And different people will do that in different ways. I think uh, my two cents worth is if we don't, get climate and energy policy right in the next 10 to 15 years, not just here, but globally, other things start to matter less and less and less. It's that, for me, it's that. Um, that's also a planetary proposition. We could get that right in Australia and still slide into the sea. Uh, we have to think post-nationally. Um, that's the different kind of scale of challenge again. Okay, Scott, well, we're moving ahead now. We've been there. You've suddenly been, uh, we ask a few of our podcast uh, questions, something like this, but the, the world's changed. Um, uh, you're, uh, you've just been appointed as Prime Minister. Oh, God help us all. Congratulations. <laughs> and um, you're obviously faced with uh, our current situation, bang on right at the moment. Forget COVID, just put COVID out, except the current level of inequality and, you know, the level of capture or, or our systems and our institutions. Yeah. Spend, you know, five or five or ten minutes. To just if you can, tell tell us what uh, what what you would do, Prime Minister, if you had a free free lunch, free, free go. 
There we go. I would do. I would do this. I would start showcasing what does an evolution of democratic practice actually look like in in this age, whether it's COVID or climate or whatever it is, poverty. Um, I would be very, very interested in, in uh, standing up deliberative assemblies in every electorate, in every federal electorate. Now, what a deliberative assembly is going to be tasked with doing is um, a representative sample of people in that electoral catchment from every walk of life, employed, unemployed, homeless, rich, poor, black, white, to tell these assemblies what this area needs. What do I need personally? What does my community need? that these are well-run aggregated assemblies, not just that they're gonna be proposing ideas, but we are gonna start quarantine larger and larger slabs of Commonwealth budget. And these assemblies are gonna decide where those things are spent. For me, the reverse of capture by narrow, narrow private interests of the budget, the rulemaking process and the legislature, the reverse of that, the obverse and inverse of that is uh, to vastly increase democratic practice and there are people in this country, there are practitioners of deliberative democracy who are bloody good at it, who know how to make this stuff work. I would draft them in full time to develop this program that's gonna be the opposite of capture. It's gonna be deeply and radically democratic. That's what, uh, that's what this first term of government is gonna be about. Wow, what a, what, a, what a great world we're gonna have. We're gonna have representation. About time. <laughs> in the places so where gonna... this has been done, like in the big Latin American cities in, in Brazil, where they tried these, um, these large scale citizens assemblies that had control over increasingly large sections of the budget, people don't fund joint strike fighters and obsolete submarines. They fund public housing, public transport, public parks, clean energy, homelessness support. You, you maximize the democratic participation and the diversity of it if it's a well-run process you get these extraordinarily green outcomes without anybody from the top down having to orchestrate it. You get collective intelligence. Would you also need to assume that we're going to dismantle the hold Murdoch has on the, the, the largely the public narrative here? Because this is my only concern with that respect. If, if he's allowed to have such an influence, if that neoliberal, conservative, you know, views are allowed to still reign as much as they do, um, would that not need to be dismantled simultaneously? I think you could bankrupt it by properly funding community and public media. Yeah, um, I agree. I think yeah. an ABC newspaper and more local papers, you know, yeah. and they're not expensive these days, frankly, because a lot of electronically related. Yeah. Just done with it. I feel like, um, and I think you're exactly right. So one of the first things that somebody's going to put their hand up in these deliberative assemblies around the country is we need to be able to communicate with each other without having it poisoned with division and race hate and commercial bombardment and all the shit that they slide into our discourse. Um, can, we, can we stop starving the ABC? Can we stop starving community broadcasters? Um, can we get our regional newspapers back? Why were they bankrupted? Mm. Um, I think as far as aggregating the collective intelligence goes, I think you're dead right. That's going to be quite high on the list of what people want. Um, and then you're going to look at the Murdoch papers and go, why am I reading that shit? Yeah. I don't think you need to regulate them out of existence. You just need to provide healthy alternatives.
That's true for so many things, right? This has been, a de- it's by design. You know, I'm studying it at the moment at, at, um, at uni, my master's, and looking at global supply chains and global wealth chains, which I know you mentioned in the extract of your book, like there are forces and structures that have existed to very purposely. It's not a mistake that the wealthier, uh, that the wealthy get wealthier. It's not a mistake that the poor become more dependent. These are well-designed processes that have been engineered over a long period of time, largely at poor resistance, certainly here in this country, to that, you know, robbing us from our sovereignty, robbing, robbing our, um, the, the good representatives that we do have from their ability to develop policies that are in our best interests. And unfortunately, I think, um, I don't feel like it's gone beyond the, the power. I think we could definitely reclaim it, but now is the time. It's about now. Well, I think it is. I think it is about the time now, Scott. Thank you uh, so much for uh, for joining us for this uh, this, uh, this uh, podcast. I do hope you um, you do decide to become prime minister one day. I'm looking forward to having a uh, private democracy like like that. Um, what what actually are your political aspirations, by the way? Have you given them up and you're just going to be a writer, or are we going to see you come roaring back into life to take this pr- this uh, pr- prime ministership position off? <laughs> no, like imagine if we thought the only way to make healthy democratic change was through parliament. I had six years as an advisor, as a political advisor, state and federal. I had nine years as a senator. They were some of the best years of my life, but it's we've got to move on through and let young people with fresh ideas come in behind us. So I don't think it's good for anybody to stay in there for too long. I certainly hope to see both of you two in there at, at very, you know, when you're ready. But I, I had a great dash. I am enjoying the opportunity to slow down, think about some of these big things and to be able to write. But I'm still going to miss that speech. I mean, that your speech to Tony Abbott is going to go down to be my number one favourite speech all time. Um, that, is a, that's a, <laughs> that is a kindness, but nobody needs to hear me make it again. Like <laughs> I, I appreciate it, but that, that's done. That's been done. But I think it serves as a good template. It serves as a good opportunity to, to, to see what talking truth to power while in power looks like. Because if you're a younger person and you're looking at, you know, the status quo right now, we don't see a lot of that. We don't see a lot of the truth that that was spoken to. I know it was 2014 or something. It was a long time ago. But yet I think it would be really refreshing to, to see more of that, to see that, to become, you know, um, I'd love to see younger women want to make their version of that with respect to how, you know, domestic violence has been um, dealt with and how women's um, issues have been dealt with and all of the crap that we've had to deal with. I mean, it's, it's something I'm passionate about trying to get, you know, younger women to not look at that in despair, not look at Canberra in despair, but to look at it as a, as a viable potential uh, opportunity to, to reclaim some of their power um, and I think that you know your speech while you might be hurt, you're sick of hearing people refer to it I think it plays an important role as, as a start of of that talking truth to power all right let's get to work then okay Th- thank you Scott thank you so much for joining us you've been listening to the independence can podcast Subscribe to this podcast on Spotify or through the Apple Podcast app and be sure to tweet us your thoughts, suggestions and insights using the Independence Can Podcast hashtag.